Welcome to Musicians Versus the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith. Today, we are talking with composer Tom Third. We're going to learn about his experimental music and his signature sound, as well as his creative process as he composes for film, television, and installation artworks. Now, I'm very excited about this, so let me tell you a little bit about Tom. Tom Third has scored over 250 hours of film and television and has been nominated for the Canadian Screen Award nine times, winning in both 2010 and 2014. He was also the winner of the 2004 Volkswagen Score Competition sponsored by the Berlin Film Festival. After graduating from the Ontario College of Art with a major in New Media and Film Studies, he went on to sign a recording deal with Network Productions and then pursued film scoring after the release of three critically acclaimed Electronica CDs. His work can be seen globally in dramatic series and documentaries for Showtime, HBO, Fox, NBC, PBS, CTV, and CBC. Recent projects have included four seasons of Coroner for CBC and CW, Search and Prey, produced by Mark Harmon for the USA Network, The Listener for CTV and Fox, and Shoot the Messenger for CBC. Tom also regularly collaborates with fine artists on more experimental film and installation works that have been shown at art galleries throughout the world. So Tom, thank you so much for being here and welcome to Musicians Versus the World. Thanks so much, Christine. Real pleasure to be here. I can't tell you how excited I am to talk with you. I've listened to your music, listened to some of your work, and it just is so exciting to me to be able to chat with you and figure out how it is that you hear things and you create your music. It's just, I'm going to geek out. I'm just, <laughs> just sure warning thing. you right now. Can we just jump right into it? I know you use a lot of source music. I know you've used like an earthquake microphone even, and you use a lot of um, ambient. You use things like pots and pans, and you manipulate those sounds. Can you just kind of go into your musical composition genre or, I don't know, your, your yeah. process and how you do these things? Um, there's kind of, you know, when there's down, downtime, there's hardly ever downtime kind of in this business. Right. But when I've got downtime <laughs> and I can just record a bunch of stuff, I will just ransack the kitchen and go out on my bicycle with sort of a mobile recording rig and just collect a bunch of sounds. I've, you know, snuck into parking garages with drumsticks and a cello and whatever, and set up in that space and just record stuff, you know, in that huge reverberant space and bang on all the pipes and air conditioning units and whatever. Um, and then figure out what to do with that stuff later. So there's usually this sort of mad recording process, collect everything and anything, whatever tickles my fancy, and then sit down and hack through it and see if I got anything that I can use or, you know, edit it down to drum sounds or something like that. I don't really know where it's going to go at all when I'm doing it. So you don't go in with like, okay, I need this sort of sound. I'm going to go. It's much more experimental than that. Yeah. It's just a crazy freeform, um, you know, <laughs> bad dash <laughs> through some natural <laughs> environment. No, I don't know. Um, pretty rarely that I'm going after something in specific, I think. So you'll just go out and you listen. And then when you come back in, you think, does something just spark your creative ear? Or how do you know when yeah. you, when something works? I'll be listening to stuff 
uh, I'll be listening back to the stuff I've recorded. And let's say with, if it, with the, with the, in the case of the cello, like I'm not a cello player. So it is literally like banging on the cello with drumsticks and, and, and dragging it, you know, through, through a space or something like that. And then I'll just hear <laughs> things that are like textures or little melodic inventions of some kind. I'll, I'll listen to something. I'll go, that's like the first couple notes of a melody. And no, oh, maybe that thing is the second half of that. And then I might write on top of that. It might sort of inspire me to write a kind of a melodic thing, or it will just sound cool and end up being kind of a texture. Yeah. You know, most of the stuff I do in terms of content is dramatic and dark. Typically, people hire me to do that sort of soundscapey stuff. So it, a lot of the stuff does find its way in one way or another, even if it's just a pad or a drone or a squeak or a, something like that. So you'll take those sounds and you will actually make it into a pad or? Yep. I will sample the heck out of them and get them into, you know, contact or something like that and see if they're playable. Okay. You kind of get a sense ultimately. It's sort of like DJs working with, you know, vinyl. That it's like, oh, I can, I know I can use that sound, right? The wah or whatever it is. <laughs> so you get a sense of what will be a playable kind of a sound or might be useful or will loop well. It might create a little rhythmic something or other. Um, so there's a lot of time spent d doing that, building these sort of electronic instruments that then I can just play quickly when the show starts and you're into that oh, okay. TV schedule where it's like, you've got four days to do the thing. So you don't have time to run off into the woods and bang on trees with an ax. You've got to just keep working. <laughs> so, uh, so I try and have these things kind of ready to go. Okay. So you have like a palette. And so there's a bunch of stuff that's, yeah, that's not been used yet in anything that's just sitting in a folder waiting to be unleashed on some, you know, unsuspecting showrunner or something like that. So just keep <laughs> adding to the, the bin, the library of stuff. So when you get your episode or whatever it is that you're going to be working on and you're spotting that scene, you can think, oh, I was just creating a sound that will work or a texture that'll work perfectly for this scene. Yep, exactly. I'll, I'll create a, a you know, a, a a song file, a template that might have a, you know, a hundred of these weird things. And then if I'm looking at a scene, it's like, oh, let's just see if there's anything in the tickle trunk that will work here, you know? And it's like, oh yeah, that's almost thematic, you know, and I can use that. And that's happened quite a bit where I've been improvising on an instrument or something like that. And then that ends up being some kind of signature sound or something like that. And do the showrunners usually respond well to this type of experimentation? Depends on the showrunner. I would say, I would say, yes, they love it. They really, because um, it sounds and feels new to them just as an approach. It's not like this is radical or reinventing the wheel, right? This is an old tradition right. that goes back, you know, a hundred years. But, you know, they'll hear something, they'll go, what is that? And I'll go, that's like some, you know, wolf, wolf, shark, whale sounds or wolf calls or something that I've processed or that's my cat or something or that's the fridge door and everybody will sort of erupt in laughter in the playback it's like oh that's what that was um <laughs> so it's just sort of fun because I'm because because yeah. the the mission is usually Tom we want something new we want something we've never heard before blah 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 that's right. kind of every composer's job i think right it's like we want a theme that sounds like nothing anybody's ever done there's only five thousand tv shows that have been made have at it right so you're <laughs> always struggling to bring some kind of i think novelty or something new to the table right we hear this in tv themes we hear all the time right someone brings in hans zimmer brings in the bagpipes and everybody goes wow 
bagpipes. Who would have thunk, you know, in Dune or something like that? So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's always a push for that kind of stuff. People like it. Yeah. And so they probably call you because you're so experimental. They say, oh, we want something new. Let's call Tom. I hope so. I think that's what happens. There's lots of people that don't phone me for the reason that I want, that I'm not the right fit. I'm too Mm -hmm. dark. I'm a bit too weird, too something, something. And, you know, kids shows, I don't get those calls even as much as I would love, (laughs) you know, be fun. And, you know, I've worked for Sesame Street and a bunch of stuff, but that, that would not be my thing. Oh, you never know. You never know. If they, if they gave you a try, but they would love what you came up with. Yeah. It doesn't have to be dark. I know you started out with sampling and hip hop. And is that just kind of a natural progression into this new experimentation? Yep. They, I mean, they sort of arose for me at the same time. I mean, when I started doing stuff, it was just literally as samplers appeared in like 1981, 1982 was just when I was starting to fool around. And um, there were no samplers available for the common folk, right? There was the Fairlight, you know, recording Peter Gabriel records, and that was it. So um, I was doing stuff with turntables and with cassette decks and four tracks and trying to get that sound of loops yeah. and things. And and went literally like tape loops in art college, like working with tape loops and doing it sort of the old school way. Yeah, it all happened at the same time. Hip hop, craft work early 80s, mid 80s, hip hop, all that stuff sort of just landed right when I was just sort of coming of age making stuff. So I'd been using synthesizers a lot, but that idea of working with found sound, plus it Mm -hmm. freed me up from having to be, I'm not a great piano player. That's my first instrument, my only instrument, like not by any means. I'm just really a kludgy, kludgy player. And as soon as I was sort of introduced to these tools that you could you didn't need a, 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 a huge technical facility to play a vacuum cleaner mm-hmm. or a turntable or pots and pans. I thought, well, this is my medium for sure. I don't have to practice. I can be weird. And that just <laughs> became part of my MO, I think, you know. Yeah. And sampling too, you know, working with samplers. I still use samplers that way. I mean, I don't play the cello, but I can play one note and then I can play mm-hmm. another note and I can cut them together and I can cheat my way through these things without having to actually learn how to play. <laughs> but you do have to train your ear to to do this and to kind of understand the balance and everything. How yeah. did you train how did you train your listening? I don't know if the training is the right word so much that makes it sound rigorous. It's more <laughs> like you know, you just start here. It's just, you know, you hear, you know, there's a tonality in a lot of the things that you'll record. There's a resonant frequency and you think, oh, it's got a bit of a melodic thing, just like the wind, you know, blowing through a, a picket fence yeah. or something like that. You just start to hear those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, my work's not, you know, for the listeners, I mean, my work isn't only made from this stuff. I end up using the right. same sample libraries and Omnisphere and all the junk that people use to to make shows and do film scores and stuff. But it definitely yeah. augments those tools for sure. Right. So as as you're doing this, you might use those just kind of as a foundation or as like a little sparkling or a little like something or other on top of it just to give it a little extra something. Yeah. I used to be, I used to do a lot of collage work when I was in art college, yeah. right? And that would be like, you'd sort of be combining spaces. You know, you'd have a picture from somewhere and a background from somewhere else. And this idea of, of combining spaces that didn't or weren't meant to go together. I still, I'm still interested in that sound in music where you might have a traditional orchestral palette in the background, but a weird glitchy loop on top of it 
that almost sits in front of the, the real space. It just artificially yeah. intrudes on this actual space or something like that. And a lot of the music that I listen to and really like has that kind of com- that electroacoustic hybrid classical yeah. slash cut up, you know? Yeah. One of your albums, that reminds me of it. Um, one of your songs, Ant Farm. Mm-hmm. I can kind of see what you're talking about because it has that jazz, but then underneath it has these other textures. And I can see where you're thinking about that collage sort of background, foreground sort of sound. To That's that. a good example. Because I was listening, because I studied jazz and I, was, I still listen to jazz. And, you know, it's, it's so, it's a, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fast breakbeat sort of drum and bass drum loop. But then I brought in real players, jazz guys, to, to play solos on top of it sort of, uh, so it was really fun for me to put that organic and looped thing together. Yeah. So what is the process when you bring in real instrumentalists? Do you have them come in first or do you lay down the tracks and then have them come in after? In the context of scoring, I usually have the, something laid down for gotcha. efficiency's sake. And because the tempos are pretty strict because we're working with you know locked picture and you want to match all of these hit points and all that kind of stuff. Right. So I usually lay something down and then bring somebody in and go, work your magic. You know, here's a play. I've left some space for you. And I usually try not to, it depends what we're doing. I try not to over-prescribe the part or, you know, play it, you know, play it exactly like this or something like that. Usually I want people to come in and kind of improvise in some sense, yeah. the same way I, I do with a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I'm thinking that this whole collaboration takes a whole lot of trust because the showrunner has to trust you to work your magic and then you have to trust the musicians that you hire to work their magic too. How are you building these relationships where you can just trust each other so much? That's an excellent question. <laughs> and I mean, on the in the case of 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 the last couple of projects I've worked on, I did the show Coroner, and then I just did this yeah. big documentary called Black. And um, in both these cases, these are people that I've worked with for decades. The last 20 mm. years, I've sort of worked with these people. It's always a bit scary going in at first, right? You don't know if the marriage is going to work. It's really like a first date, and there's a lot of awkward conversation, and like, I think so, maybe, huh? What? And um, <laughs> But as you get to know each other, um, it gets a little bit easier. And I find television particularly, it's not just the composer that they're trusting. It's everybody, right? The writers, the the actors, the 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 DP, all of that stuff, everybody's in a mode of you must trust us to just get this done because there's not a ton of time to reinvent the wheel. Once you press go, you you make that show happen in a week. And um, I find the best showrunners that I work with are the best because they trust the people they work with. And even when you don't, even when you mess up and everybody does, you don't quite get the thing right, but it's too late, you just got to send it out. That happens to everybody on the show. The writers, the actors, not the best take. That wasn't my best scene. And because it's a sense of family, I find, on the best shows, they know that you did your best. You put in all the hours possible. And no one is scolded or made to feel like they messed up. It's just like, it's okay, Tom. 
with next week, episode six, we'll get, you know, right? We know that that didn't work. So there's a lot of loving support. And in both of these, these things I just worked on, and actually most things I work on, everybody's really super pro about letting people, encouraging people not to, to continue to be experimental and take risks and do their best work, even though that might not work 100% of the time. The trust thing just sort of builds as you go, I think, like any relationship. Just builds over time and keeping that communication open. Yep. That's yeah. a huge part of it. It's a huge part, you know, as I'm sure your listeners know, of of all of this sort of composer stuff. Um, the communication is half the job. Writing the music is definitely a big part of it, but a lot of it is diplomacy and, you know, pitching ideas and and modifying your ideas and checking your ego at the door so that you are not, right. you know, a prima donna. You know, it's part of your, it's a team, it's a team effort. It's the best part mm-hmm. about it. It's the part that freaked me out at first, being kind of a loner and all those kinds of things, is getting involved <laughs> in this team effort while you're, you know, pushing the ball up the hill. Um it's turned out for me to be the most enduring and fantastic part of the job, I find. Really? The family. Really? Yeah. So what was the turning point from going from a loner to a family for you? I, out of necessity, I would say. I really okay. loved the work. It, it, it's just, yeah, if you want to be on the team, you have to be a team player. So you have to figure that out. So, so I just, I used to collaborate less. I used to be a little more hermetic in the way I approach things, a little more precious about stuff. And I think you just get a little more relaxed after you've been doing it for a while. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Bring, I'm more open to collaboration and just more. I'm just, I'm just better at the job now. Yeah. So, um, and, and things that I, th- I thought were about sort of creative vision were actually kind of holding me back a little bit. Like the idea of, of trying so hard to defend some of my own ideas or something um, it, it actually restricts you a little bit. The more open you are to collaboration with everybody in the, on the team, the editors, everybody that you're kind of directly working with, um, the better it is. You kind of let go. So now when you mean defend your ideas, that means if they come back and say, this cue isn't working, try something different, and you kind of get defensive and upset about it? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. So inside, you yeah, you think, oh, God, I love this one. That was my baby, and I presented to them, and they don't like it. And um, we, we always revise it anyway, right? It's not our film or our show or anything. Um, and but occasionally I will say, uh, "Here's why I did that. This is you know mm-hmm. why I'm defending it." Um, and um, you know, see what they say. They often just go with their their instincts. But they always know the show. I do trust directors, all of the directors I work with. I trust them. They know the material, the writers. They know it better than I ever will. It's based Uh, on uh personal experience that they've brought to the table that might go back 20 years, some family Mm -hmm. thing that they might have been drawing inspiration from. So, uh, and then I come in like a week before the mix and and do my thing. Like, what do I know? So I am absolutely interested in hearing what the director has to say. And a lot of the processes teasing that out of them and the writers like what what do you guys mean by this what why what's this why why what what are we doing here (laughs) you know what's this about (laughs) for reals you know yeah um that's that's trying to understand where they're coming from yep so now what usually is the turnaround time um 
especially if you're doing a network show, there's lots of different episodes. How much time do you have to score one of these episodes? When you get up and, I mean, you got a little more time in the first season. There's, you know, mm -hmm. depends. I've had done, done it all from one day to five months or whatever. But um, I think it probably averages a week, week to 10 days per episode. On Coroner, mm -hmm. we were sort of, you know, in a couple of seasons in, you know, a week per episode. And that means you get the picture lock on Monday morning, say, and you spot it that day. And you need to kind of get at the top to bottom of the show out kind of by Wednesday night or Thursday morning to producers. Wow. So they can give you notes and then you kind of do turnarounds on the weekend and madly get into the mix on Monday. So I say four days to people. That's the, but it, that's about as fast as I've ever had to do it. Sometimes uh -huh. three days or a couple or some crisis or something. But anyway, so you're working fast. Yeah, um, that is very th fast. It's not, it's not a bad thing. I used to think when I started that that was impossible to do, to write, you know, a half an hour of music in four days and mix it and everything. I just thought that's impossible. And then I got faster and faster at it. And I discovered it's actually not impossible. It's hard, but it's not impossible. You get it done. <laughs> and there's, um, there's a silver lining in that when you are working that quickly, you are plunged into a kind of a creative freefall where you can't second guess any of your instincts. You just have to execute it and just like do it. Um, and for me personally, that actually puts me into a, creative space that I have trouble getting into on my own. If I've just given oh. an infinite deadline to do something, like when I was doing my records or something, I would just take forever and I would tweak and second guess everything. And it, yeah. it was, mm -hmm. uh, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And then on this TV stuff, you're in such a panic. It's just like, I'm just going to write some music really fast and maybe it's good. And then you listen to it two weeks later and you go, oh my God, where did that come from? Who did that? I didn't even know I could play like that. I didn't know that chord before because you're just channeling, right? It can be really, anyway, I find it thrilling. It's terrifying, but <laughs> thrilling. So. so as you're just in that state of flow, it's kind of like in a good performance when you don't remember how you performed it. You don't even remember performing it and you could just go back and listen I don't. to the recording. People temp, when I'm working on shows, I, people temp my own music into it, and I don't yeah. know it's mine. Like, literally, I'm not even exaggerating. They'll play something back. I'll go, that sounds pretty cool. And they'll go, well, yeah, it's you from something you did. And I don't know. <laughs> it's one of the 10,000 cues I've written for some, uh, I don't know what it is. Um, and it Isn't always sounds incredible? worse when you're working on it, right? Because you're trying to fix everything. Yeah. And then you go back and look at stuff, and it's like, well, that worked Yeah, because you're too close to it, you right? Get, and so you just hear it way too much, and you get sick of it. Yep. You're, you're inside it and you're getting stuck on things that aren't important to the listener. And at some point you make that transformation from the person that's making the thing to the listener. And then you're just hearing it the way people hear it. It's like, oh, that's a show. Yeah. And I'm listening to the dialogue and following a story. <laughs> the important mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that's where that collaboration really helps because everyone, you know, the showrunners or the directors can be those ears that you are just too busy to be. They can give you those notes and help you. Totally. Totally. Yeah, because yeah. I'll, I'll do something and I think it's good and they'll just go, no, that's crazy. And you go, okay. <laughs> and you just, and you trust them, right? right. On, the, on the other side of that 
They think it's crazy. I don't have time to debate this or or go back inside it. They're right. They're right. It's crazy. Yeah. And then I and then I swear 99 times out of 100, I go back and listen to the thing I thought was so good. And it's crazy. They were right. <laughs> it is crazy. So it's like having that partner or that, you know, older sister or just somebody telling you to, you know, fixing your hair and, you know, whatever, you know, yeah. helping you get through life. <laughs> But I like your um, your take on it. There's a quote that you said in an interview a few years back that said, let's figure out where the boundary is by crossing it and then walking back. Yeah. I love that. I love that fearlessness of just go for it. That's for me. Well, and, you, you know, I think most people's when we look at the shows that we all hold dear, whatever they are this year, Last of Us or White Lotus or whatever it is. Right. Mm-hmm. I think those those writers and those actors as artists just go to the edge of something, the edge of crazy, cross over and go, that's just, that's nuts. And just bring <laughs> it back to that knife edge where you are really kind of doing something new, but not messing it up. Oh, they've just brought it to the edge of crazy, <laughs> right? And they're just <laughs> holding it there. And the energy in that moment is really compelling, I find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you get that really, really good connection there. Yep. Yeah, it's like when a singer is really belting, right? And they've got like they're just like up on some crazy note, and like their voice is going to break or something, and it's and then they hold it, and you go, "Woo, Mariah, awesome!" (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That's true. switch gears a little bit. I'm really interested in um, installation artworks and you've worked and collaborated a lot in in this type of thing. Can you explain what that is and what music's role is in this type of art? So yeah, a whole different kettle of fish in that. So, you know, my, 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 my schooling is not music. Um, It's Mm -hmm. visual art. And then, and then as I was studying, you know, I was starting to be a painter and illustrator or something like that. I sort of switched over into film and but I was at art college so I could take robotics and all this other kind of cool stuff and I took all those things it was super fun um but installation work that's you know you'll go into a gallery and there's going to be a setup of a something something you know and it's a sculpture in a room and then there's maybe kind of a surround sound system or something like that or very frequently there's a a, a monitor uh you know playing back a single channel video they would call it you just go in and contemplate this thing, right? There's a monitor sitting on a white pedestal or something like that. So uh, it's a just, yeah, it's a different animal, certainly in the working yeah. process. It's like you, we have tons of time to collaborate in these things and think them through and lots of back and forth and lots of experimentation. Um, you know, we might spend weeks making a five minute video versus, you know, whatever it, you would do in television. And um and then there's a real site specific component to that in that so we so I'll do some sound stuff it's again it's usually way more experimental it's got mm-hmm. a loop and 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 not be cloying cuz it's going to play for 12 hours in a gallery or right. something like that and um so they're often a little more ambient and a little less hooky i'm not trying to like they don't want i don't want them to sound repetitive um but then there's a then there's an aspect of it which is what's where what's the room like like, let's go mm-hmm. visit the room where this is actually going to be set up and figure out how to make it sound okay 
you know, like let's, we're going to hide the speakers or we're going to do this or that. It's very frequently a, a, a white cube kind of gallery space. Um, yeah. Not the ideal place to play back sound. It's a big echoey room, right, with all hard surfaces. Right. So I mix differently. I sort of treat the, the production differently so it'll sound sort of better in that space. Um, some stuff travels around. So you've got to think about different spaces. A lot of the work I've done is sort of more of sort of multi-channel surround sound type things. So we're using sort of Macs and different sort of, you know, multiple computers playing back, you know, 20 tracks and having a bunch of speakers and stuff like that. So the concerns about, it's a bit more, you know, in some sense, it's a bit more like how people work with video games when you're, when you're syncing to action that's happening somewhere in the space, but you've got different modules and things popping up here and there. Anyway, it's a different thing and they're all different. So where a television series, there's a real sort of playbook on how to get a show out the door, right? You've got that spotting session and then we meet and there's notes, bam, there's a mix. Um, Every one of these things, like we sit down and go, okay, how are we going to do that? I work with an artist, Simone Jones, and she's a roboticist. And so she builds robots, um, but they project and they, you know, there's, there's, you know, uh, the last piece we did kind of had these rotating projectors on these look like sort of radar towers in the space. Really cool, right? So you go in a dark room and there's projections going on all over the walls, kind of moving around. And then we work with the sound to kind of also move it in that kind of 3D space. You're moving so, the sound around? Yeah. we're Yeah, we've got, you know, a bunch of speakers set up and we're just trying to yeah. kind of match this panning in some sense. So when images move the sound will kind of track along with it and that kind of thing. So just technically figuring out all that stuff is super fun. Yeah. And and super weird every time. I never know quite know <laughs> how we're going to do it and then we kind of figure it out. Yeah, and you have to automate it cuz you're not going to be sitting there mixing it for 12 no, hours. It's got to be automated. Yeah, some of the, a lot of the work I hand off to a young person who knows more about computers than I and they can make it kind of happen. In the yeah. case of this one artist Simone, she does all of that putting togetherness of it. So I give her some sound files and she kind of works them into the thing. That's And so it's much more ambient. So there may not be as much of a, you said hook, so not so much melody, not so much something that will get annoying after an hour or 12 hours. Exactly right. I used to make the mistake where I'd make it, oh, let's put a big piece of music in here. And then Mm -hmm. I'd go into the gallery and there's a big piece of music playing and it's driving everybody crazy and it's looping. So, you know, how long it is, right? But people want to kill me. And, 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 and I <laughs> saw that right away. So this doesn't work. It's got to be more contemplative. Um, I wanted to get out of that cliche of, of artwork that's all kind of experimental and ambient, that kind of thing. But bringing these cinematic traditions into that space doesn't always work. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, I've gone back to sort of more tried and true with a lot of these things. Yeah. So is your composition process different when you have more time like you do for these art? works rather than like the one week turnaround yeah it's a different there's more it's more about the permutations in a sense i mean when when i'm working on the tv stuff it's just like because there are times when i'm working on something and i've only got another hour to finish it and i go yeah i went down the wrong side of the ski hill you know it's Mm -hmm. like i'm committed but i should have gone the other way and this is not working as well as it could and then you just do it with some of this more sort of experimental art stuff, then you try something and you go, eh, I think I can do better. Maybe there's another approach that can work. 
And frequently there's not a lot of dialogue to work with, you know, it may be more abstract imagery or something like that. And you don't, um, so you're not beholden to a lot of those things that kind of keep music suppressed in some sense. So there's a lot more room to, to, there's so many more kinds of approaches that can work. So I find I, I, I do variations. Okay. That's one approach. I'll just whap through something. Yeah. Maybe that works. Oh, okay. Try something completely different. Does that work? Does that work? Sit down with the artist. I got three ideas here. See what you think. Maybe we combine things I would never do in TV, you know, present multiple versions of a cue because mm-hmm. some, then someone will say, well, we want some of this and we want some of that from each of these. And you're <laughs> like, oh no, I've got to mix the bassoons with the bagpipes or whatever it is. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but with the installation stuff and sort of some of the more experimental film work, uh, there's more time to play around. But then you have to have a little bit more discipline, right? Because you don't want to get that perfection to get in the way of good. So how do you balance that time and perfectionism with, you know, being good enough? There's always a deadline at some point. Okay, there you go. <laughs> there's always, I always say there's nothing like a deadline and TV is just tighter. But I gotcha. with the art stuff, right? There's only so much time you can play around. So I look gotcha. at the schedule. I go, well, this is the gallery opening in the fall. We've got a month to do this. Okay, let's try a week with this and a week with that, and you know, try and schedule it out a bit. Gotcha. But I sort of rely on 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 those things. Mm-hmm. I think every composer would say, I mean, or maybe not everyone, but I I just my work expands to fill the amount of time I have to do it in. If I got right. three days to do it, I'll do it in three days. If I got three years to do it, I'll spend three years doing it because there's just so <laughs> you know. You look how long it takes someone to you know someone will write a symphony for right. for. 10 years or something and you listen to it and That's you go, true. it's exquisite. And it's the same length of the amount of music that I do in three days for a TV show. And that's why it doesn't sound like we're writing symphonies because we don't have enough time to do that kind of necessarily exquisite work. So we have all this kind of, not that I'm ever going to write a symphony anyway, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so yeah, I will, I will, I will sweat the details if I have time. If you have time. I mean, it's such a cliche, but serving the story you know when i'm mentoring people we just talk about story you're a storyteller you know you're part of that team that's telling the story everything you do has to be about telling story and if you it's suddenly about you nobody cares you know unless it's whatever it's a song or it's the big finale or something like that but for the most part (laughs) you know our job is to like support those actors who are working so hard you know, yeah. every, just every frame is just about making them and the writing tell that story, whatever that takes. Mm. Well, you must do a very good job of it because you have gotten another Canadian Screen Award nomination. So congratulations on that. Um, thank you very much. There were two this year. I won for Black. I won for the documentary. Congratulations. And thank you. That was great. Um, and then Coroner, I was up... <laughs> Every year that the show ran, did not win. But uh, I felt good about that. That was kind of like, you know, slow and steady wins the race. It was kind of a consistency thing. I was always kind of in the running. I thought, anyway, I was very proud of my work on that show. Yeah. And uh, so I was glad it got recognized as much as it did. And then Black was just a super cool um, documentary. So that was also a real pleasure. And those things are fun. You know, it's not nobody goes into this 
thinking about the awards while they're working on a project or something. It's not even mm-hmm. on your radar. And then you're done and you collapse in a heap. And then they tell you you've been nominated and you go, great, party, get to hang out with my homies and celebrate. You know, it's a lot of fun. So I'm yeah. not blase about it at all. No. So it's not old hat by now, even though you've been nominated so many times. No, it's not old and hat. And winning it's, so many times. It's fun every time. <laughs> it's fun every time. It's a great party because you're getting together. It's it just, especially post-COVID, where all of this stuff went virtual, and that was depressing. And um, <laughs> so now everybody was back in person for the first time this year. So it's a whole bunch of compadres we hadn't seen for three years. Um, Mm -hmm. so it was just a crazy energy in the room, people hugging and, Hey, how are you? What are you working on? And you know, that was a lot of fun. Oh, that's great. That is great. Well, you have some new projects. Maybe you'll get nominated again. What are you working on right now? So I'm in documentary mode. So I've got three going. One's coming up. It's a women's prison in Kansas city and sort of the story of these women, tragic and heartfelt and uplifting but mostly infuriating you know it's just a it's a a tome about you know the the ill effects of incarceration maybe not necessarily the best way to deal with some of these problems of abuse and that kind of thing fantastic film um the one i'm currently working on is um about a brooklyn beat poet named stacy ann shin who is searching for her birth mother and it's that journey very cool wow. film. And then the last one is uh, about uh, repatriating uh, artworks that were uh, stolen uh, by the Nazis during the Second World War and getting them back to their rightful owners. Oh, my goodness. Also really cool film. That is incredible. Those are very, very different from each other. Are you going to, how do you adjust your approach to each of these different types? I mean, completely different they're all completely Tones. different. There's sort of like a Delta blues vibe for the Kansas thing. And then the, 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 you know, the artwork, you know, the, the paintings going back to Germany. I don't know what we're doing with that yet, but it's going to have some sort of classical <laughs> kind of component to it. Cause there's a lot of stock footage and period stuff. And yeah. then um, what's the other one? Oh, our Brooklyn beat poet. It's sort of, um, it's sort of like Jamaican lullabies and stuff. So it's uh, anyway, they they all run the, the gamut. Um, that's why I love this job, is that you're tasked with, hey Tom, here we go. We got some Jamaican lullabies and we've got some Teutonic brown shirt footage and we've got this and that, um, Delta blues. Have at it. And in a lot of cases, I have to research, I have to inhabit these other styles of music and see what they're all about. And that's, that's fun. That's like, it's like being paid to do research. I used to do a lot of commercials back in the 90s, and you'd be just throwing every, any, anything in, but everything, right? And it would be like, I'd get a country western song. It's like, well, what does make Hank Williams sound like Hank Williams? You got to get in, listen to the bass line and figure out the timing and like, okay, there's that. And then you get something else and then you get something else. So it really, it's like being forced to read the classics or something mm-hmm. like that with a lot of this stuff. It's like just somebody handing you Plato's Republic and go figure what that, figure out what that's about. You go, great. I finally get to read this. Um, so with a lot of this stuff, you know, if I've got to write these Wagnerian operas for, you know, our World War II film, then okay, great. Let's listen to more Wagner and, and, and see what's going on. Am I terrified? 
absolutely. In every one of these, <laughs> and I think like question. in every single project that, that drops in my lap, yeah. I'm like, yeah, 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 I'm up. I can do that. Great. You know, and then we like, it's like, let's do this thing. And then I, you know, hang up the phone and hang up the phone like I'm from the 1950s. And, um, <laughs> and then you think, oh my God, what have I just said yes to? Right. But then, you know, you call your friends and you, you figure out how you're going to do it. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, it's, it's a matter of like, I think, okay, well, I just need, a, you know, two of those amazing soloists to kind of come in. They're just going to help, you know, bring this thing home. Like, so vo- working with a vocalist now on this new film, she's amazing. So it's just, you just know when you can bring in a musician like that, it's just going to be... I'm yeah. saved. I don't have to do it all myself. I've got this amazing soul singer that is just going to take this thing to the next level. So, yeah, that always helps. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be so flexible and just so willing to learn to do your job well. Yeah. Yeah, you do. I um I have so enjoyed listening and learning from you. Is do you have any last minute advice for up and coming composers or musicians or anything like that? It's the advice is so, so I do a ton of mentoring and the advice is different, you know, really depending on the age group. But I think like the common thread. And so, so first off, I don't have a ton of musical training, like nothing really official. I studied jazz piano as a teenager for a couple of years. So I continue to have imposter syndrome. I just don't have, you know, epic amounts of music training. Um, but I, but I get work and I write music. So, so I think, I think for one thing, I, I'm not sure what the advice born out of that is, but but mostly for people to be undaunted and and to plunge in whether or not they think they're qualified or not. To not be intimidated by all the talent out there. Like the, your your talent is here in your voice, you know, not voice voice, but you know what I mean. Your your aesthetic, and um, that's worth something. That's worth a lot, and it's just a matter of finding the, the courage to let your freak flag fly. I think all showrunners, artists, record label people, they're interested in your vision. And I don't, so it just doesn't matter. I think people can just dive in. But then the other thing I would say is, is um, for as long as one can, I think there's a, there's a moment for all of us as young artists, you know, when you're a teenager in your parents' basement or whatever, where the act of creation is just an ecstatic and transcendent um, experience. And that work is very, very pure and energetic, I find. When I listen to my old stuff, I'm like, I love that. Who was that person? They were unhinged. And it was because I didn't know <laughs> I didn't think anybody would listen or was listening. And so I was really just tapping into my own crazy. And when I hear artists doing work like that now, where they're just fearlessly expressing themselves without the thought of whether the audience is going to intervene or judge them or anything like that, that's I think the most exciting work. In, across all disciplines, you know, so it's yeah, it's I think it's like don't don't forget there was a time where you made work and there was nobody telling you what to do, and can mm-hmm. you tap into that, no matter what the situation is? I still think about this when I'm working on a show, like I'm I'm, I'm hindering myself, I'm I'm self censoring, I'm I'm trying to think about what not just the audience of the people that are directing me on the show, but the audience that's watching the show. I'm thinking about what they want. That's bad. You gotta gotta yeah. kind of just recenter yourself, find your voice again, and then and then re-emit, you know, regurgitate <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> 
Yeah. Wow. That is, that's a difficult thing to do. It is difficult. It gets harder and harder for me to act without knowledge or without prior knowledge or, or, or to act innocently in the creation of things. I think about that innocence and, and you don't even know you've made a mistake or you don't know your musical grammar is messed up. You're just, it just sounds good and you think it is good. Uh, anyway, yeah. I see that when I'm working with younger people I go, Oh, I need to get me some of that innocence <laughs> and rage and exuberance, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that passion and I think confidence that comes with youth as well. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Just, just unfounded, but confident nonetheless, <laughs> right? Which is so great. Yeah. Tom Third, you are just such a joy. Thank you so much for taking the time and chatting with me and uh, telling me all about your creative process and the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much. A real delight. Really had a great time. Thank you for joining us today on the Musicians vs. the World podcast in my conversation with award-winning composer Tom Third. If you want to find out more about Tom and to hear more of his music, you can find him at tomthird.com. In this episode, you've heard Pipe Cutter from Coroner, Ant Farm, Durham County, and Sisters Piano, all composed by Tom and shared here with permission. I will have links to everything we've talked about today on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Musicians versus the world is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. This episode was produced by Russ Wilkes and was hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith. We appreciate the nice notes and messages we are getting from you, and we read every single one of them. If you'd like to reach out to us with suggestions, questions, or just to say hi, you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, or Facebook, or you can email us at info at Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day.